You see, every time the pastor teases you, he doesn't realize, well, maybe he does or should, I always get the last word. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I haven't got my paycheck. And I need that $50, too, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> Open your Bibles up, if you would, to John chapter 3. And it is a pleasure to be here with you uh, this week, and I trust that you're going to be here for every service. And you'll like that I get longer and longer as the week goes on. So um, I want to share with you out of uh, John chapter 3 this week. And uh, we might dip a little bit into John chapter 2. And going to be there a little bit this morning in terms of reference. Um, John chapter uh, 3 uh, can only be understood, you understand, if you have read John chapter 2. And it's amazing how we sometimes forget this. and You probably don't. But teenagers and and. At camp and such, we uh, and maybe we're raised in this in terms of the devotional books that we have. Uh, we're oftentimes tempted to take each uh, each book and piece it apart and think we can understand it. Well, that, that's not so. That these are actually letters that are written. And I don't know if you have email. Probably do. Probably a bunch of net surfers out there. Um, but you don't read email or read a letter from somebody and start in the middle and expect to understand it. You open up the letter and you begin from the very beginning and you read all the way through it. And in order to understand the end, you need to understand the beginning. That's simple enough to understand. We also understand that it's the same way in the Word. And that if we pick up John chapter 3 and just begin to read from there, we're not going to have the foundation that we need to have uh, since we didn't read the beginning of the letter. And so we're in looking at chapter 3 uh, this morning, and we're going to look at verses 22 through 30. It's a direct result of what he's been writing all along, and uh, which is uh, it's an incredible passage of Scripture. I want to read it for you this morning, and I'm reading out of the New International Version. Uh, but I will, I've done word studies and such, and it's really, uh, every translation is, the, is going to be the same in this passage when you come back to the original language. We're going to look at some of that so it'll make sense for you. So, it's good to be here with you. Smile. Let's read, John, I'll read for us, John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. After these things, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized now John, that is the Baptist, also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and the people were constantly coming to be baptized. And this was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew, or that can be translated certain Jews, over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And to this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. You, you cannot get away from, you, you cannot get away from the calling that Christ gives to each and every one who wishes to follow after him. You can't get away from that. Every single Christian is going to have that same uh, attitude about them. They're going to have that same stride. They're going to have that same walk. They're going, to have that, they're going to have that same focus in life. 
And it's very easy to understand. He says it, Jesus says it consistently throughout his ministry, states it in every single gospel, uh, and maybe not phrased the exact same way, but the concept is expressed in every single gospel. And don't miss this. Here's what it is. He says, anyone who does not deny himself, whoever does not deny himself and take up his cross or her cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow Jesus and hang on to yourself. Folks, that has been a hard one for me to swallow. Just to be frank with you. That is a hard one for me to swallow. Because what I have found in my life is that that's not a one-time thing. I thought it was going to be. Um, When I came to the Lord, I went down to the altar, responded in a service, and said, Jesus, I give you everything, take my life. Turned around and walked away and felt like, wow. I mean, you know, you feel new. You feel uh, just the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Uh, there's, there's something changed and you walk out and you go, wow. And then you go to McDonald's drive through and some guy gives you a hard time and you want to choke him. Uh, and you, you thought that, at least I thought, that those types of feelings wouldn't come back. But you're stuck with yourself, <laughs> I guess is how that is, is to be said. And... See, that is a daily process. It is a daily focus. Are you with me? It is a daily focus of facing your world going, not me, but you. Now, we say amen to that kind of stuff, but do we, do we really live that way? Do we really live that way in the midst of our marriages? <laughs> do you live that way in the midst of your marriage? That is so difficult. At least it is for me. It is so difficult in every situation, in every moment of my marriage, to look at my wife and say, what is best for you and not best for me? And our children, we have two chihuahuas, and to look at those chihuahuas in the midst of my, my mother and, and, and my sisters, in the midst of my friends, in the, midst of, in the midst of the people that I run into on the highway, the churches that I go to, to have this attitude about and see Jesus always had this attitude. He always had this attitude. You look at Jesus in in the relationship to he and his disciples, he never once thought of himself. You understand that, don't you? Which is really abrasive because he is the demonstration of how us men are to be toward our wife. You see, Jesus never, never uh, used the disciples for himself. He never served himself at their expense. He never used them as tools. You see, he constantly laid down his life. And, and you understand, this has to be stressed because if we forget this, we are no longer his disciples. And he tells, and, and I understand, you know, I'm not out of touch. I understand that it, uh, it is obviously a very different world we live in the day that Jesus lived in. But you understand that the principle can be no different. Everyone that Jesus came across, everyone that he came across, people would consistently come to him. And they would say openly, hey, uh, I want to be your disciple. I want to follow after you. And Jesus would say things that you and I probably, especially as a pastor, if I was a pastor, he said stuff that I would never say. He has a rich man come up to him and say, hey, I want to be your disciple. And Jesus, Jesus looks at him and uh, he says, are you sure? Do you really want this? And, uh, of course, the rich man says yes. And, and he says, go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. 
If you want to be my disciple, hey, you want to be, and I'm going to be number one, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me, then you can be my disciple. And of course, the rich man walks away. And in my mind, in my 24th century uh, mindset, I mean, that's kind of abrasive, isn't he? I mean, that's kind of abrasive, isn't it? I mean, he should at least let him come to church for a while and tithe, and then he'll lead him to that point. I mean, from the very start to say, hey, this is the line we're talking about. In fact, in a service like this, I wonder if Jesus would look at you and say, hey, uh, you, you probably don't want to be a part of this. You probably don't want to be a part of this. People come up to him, for instance, uh, uh, and say, hey, I want to be your disciple. And Jesus says, listen, you don't want to be my disciple. Get on out of here. Get down the road. And they say, no, no, I really do. He says, no, you don't. Get on out of here. Go down the road. And they say, no, I really, really want to. And he says, listen, the foxes have holes and the, uh, holes and the birds have nests, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. You really don't want this kind of life? Get on down the road. Because unless you're willing to throw your life away, throw your wants, your desires, your needs, and allow Jesus to become the number one fulfillment in your life, you cannot be his disciple. Is that abrasive? Is, that any, is it any wonder that Jesus uses the cross as, as, the, as the foundation, as the centerpiece of what he's talking about when he's talking about Christianity? And this is what he's been talking about in the Gospel of John. Uh, in, in all of chapter 3, the whole subject has been uh, the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. We're going to look at some of that this week. And uh, the subject is on this eternal life. Uh, which uh, he is talking with Nicodemus about. And it's, it's really focused on non-believers becoming believers. Uh, Non-Christians becoming Christians. Those who are being born again. They're, they're turning from an old way of life, of living for myself, of, of satisfying my own needs, of, of preparing my own way, being my own resource. You hearing me? Being my own resource. Satisfying my own needs, offering my own fulfillment. And they're turning from that style of life, facing a whole new life where the Spirit comes down inside of them and the Spirit controls their life. The Spirit is the resource by which they live. And the Spirit is the one who dictates their future every single step, every moment of every day. That's, that's the idea. And he's been talking about this. And of course, the, the focus has been on the, believe, on the non-believer becoming the believer. Now, when you come into the next section, which is the section we want to look at this morning, verses 23 or 22 through 30, you expect, and you know, this is incredible, I expected for there be, to be an illustration about this. I expected, like the other disciples, for Jesus to give some illustration, and the rich man would have been perfect here, the, and maybe one about how someone uh, became a believer and threw away all they had and began to follow Jesus, and then maybe an example of someone who didn't. So you could use the rich man in some other illustration. That would go well here, wouldn't it? But he does not use an illustration. Hear me on this. He does not use an illustration which is of a non-believer becoming a believer. Do you know the illustration that he gives us? The illustration that he gives us is of the church that ceases to have this attitude. That ceases to have this attitude. Now, I've wrestled with this in my mind. The Gospel of John was written considerably later than the other Gospels. I, I, I take it that you're aware of that. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written, uh, were written, they some say, 30 years prior to this book. So by the time that John's Gospel is written, the church had been around for a while. And there had been churches that were being developed. John was working in, in the area of Asia Minor. And, of course, the seven churches are listed for us there in the book of Revelations, chapters 2 and 3. And so he, he is, there's been churches that have been established. And they have planted churches. They have done evangelism. They probably had revival services. They've had those kinds of things going on. And this is addressed to the people in his church as well as the people outside of the church. And the illustration that he gives 
The illustration that he gives after this, after this, this talk with Nicodemus about losing your life is not an illustration given to the outsiders of the church, but it's given to those inside the church. Because apparently the people inside the church or the people in, in Jesus' day had kind of lost this attitude. Let me walk you through it this morning. Um, this is what's going on. Verse 22 says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Uh, after this is, is apparently after the, the Passover feast. In chapter 2, uh, verse 12, you have Jesus and his disciples and his mother, uh, brothers and sisters. They go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And they get there, and of course there's this huge temple scene that erupts out of that. Jesus does things, catches everyone's attention. All kinds of things going on in chapter 2. And then, of course, he has made such an impression, uh, maybe even such a stink in the temple. Uh, gathering everyone's attention, doing things that probably shouldn't be done, uncouth in the temple and, and all that sort of thing. That you have this leader of Israel, Nicodemus, who comes out to find where Jesus is staying probably that evening and he wants to talk with Jesus about the things that he's done in, in the temple. So chapter 3 verses 1 through 21 is the conversation that Nicodemus is having with Jesus about what he did earlier that day in the temple because Jesus come, or Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. The beginning of chapter 3 says. And so there's this uh, there is this uh, uh, conversation that's taking place and Jesus has been celebrating the Passover with his family there and Nicodemus comes there and talks. So after this scene, after those things, uh, his mother and brothers and sister go down uh, back to where uh, they are staying in Capernaum. And Jesus and his disciples, they go out to baptize and Jesus to spend some time with them. This is what it says. After these things, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This is before John was put in prison. So the writer is telling us, John the writer is telling us, John the gospel writer, not John the Baptist. John's telling us that Jesus goes out here to baptize and because there's such an amount of people that are coming out to be baptized uh, that John the Baptist is also out there. And so you have two ministries that are taking place out here, baptism ministries. You have John the Baptist and his disciples and you have Jesus and his disciples. And he's, and he's, and he's building up to what he wants to talk about. But then he throws in something that is seemingly strange in the passage. Uh, and it, it almost throws us off. He throws in verse 25, which is this argument that develops between some of, John, some of John's disciples and some certain Jews or a certain Jew. And, he, and, and they're arguing over ceremonial washing. And he just throws this statement in and then he goes back to the story. And it seems like uh, it, that, that little segment on ceremonial washing doesn't even, uh, doesn't even belong in the passage. It doesn't make sense. Uh, it's out of place. Listen to, what, listen to how it sounds uh, and you can be the judge for yourself. Verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Here's the scene. You have Jesus and his disciples who come out. And uh, they're, they're beginning to baptize and stuff over here. Then you have John's disciples begin to argue with these Jews over the matter of ceremonial washing. And then immediately after that verse, John's disciples come to John the Baptist and they begin to complain about Jesus baptizing. So do you see how it doesn't kind of flow together there? 
And almost like, why in the world? Why in the world would John throw in this argument about ceremonial washing and then list that, his, that John's disciples go over and begin to complain about Jesus being there baptizing? The whole thing about ceremonial washing doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to uh, make sense in that passage in that way. Now, it would seem that way unless you've been reading the Gospel of John all along. Because there's a reason why John puts that certain Jews are arguing to John, uh, John's disciples about ceremonial washing. There's a reason for that. And Jesus is the one to blame for the argument. He is the one to blame. For instance, where else in this gospel, prior to chapter 3, so you only got two chapters, 50-50. Where else in this gospel does it talk about ceremonial washing? It's in John chapter 2. That's right, the first 11 verses. Very good. First 11 verses of John chapter 2 is the story of Jesus uh, at the wedding at Cana where he changes water into wine. wine. Here's the story. This is a really neat story. If I walk down here, am I going to beep or buzz? I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> uh, here's the story, uh, and I'll paraphrase it for you because I make it sound good. Not that it's not good. But um, Jesus comes into the, the, uh, the wedding at Cana, and, uh, of course, he walks into the wedding at Cana, and his mother immediately runs into him. And, of course, you'll know that uh, by, by noting it and just uh, being familiar with it. In fact, I should read it really quickly. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus replied, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So what happens is, is Jesus comes to the wedding. They've run out of wine. Of course, weddings at this time were two and three and four days, sometimes longer. And they have ran out of wine. Never enough wine at weddings. You know how it is. And uh, so Jesus' mother runs up to Jesus and says, Listen, huge problem. They're out of wine. And of course, Jesus seems really standoffish. He says, Hey, why are you bothering me? My time has not yet come. This is my deal. And like every mother, she ignores him. And she turns to her servants in verse 5. This, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so she turns to these servants and says, hey, my son here is going to take over whether he wants to or not. And whatever he tells you to do, just do it. He's in charge. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And so she turns the servants over to Jesus, looks at him, says, thank you, Jesus. And she walks off. And now Jesus is sitting here with all these servants with this issue of wine on his hands. Now, follow me. They're out of wine. Now, if they're out of wine, that means that they've had wine prior to this moment. So they probably have extra wine containers around. Uh, they might have jars from the kitchen that they might put wine in. But Jesus has them do the most strange thing. He has these servants who are wanting to deal with the wine issue. So they probably have stuff to put wine in. But he doesn't tell them to fill those things up with water. What does he tell them to fill up with water? Look at verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Kind used for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. It's a lot of water. They're not plastic, they're stone, which means they're heavy. At the least, they're made out of clay, so they're heavy, probably stone, but they're heavy. 25 to 30 gallons. Jesus says, hey, listen, there are six stone water jars sitting over there. Jesus says, you see those? He says, I want you to fill those things up with water. Now, in the servant's mind, are they dealing with the wine? 
Well, no. Because you don't put wine in those things. Those things are not used for drinking. They're not used for wine. They're not used for the party. They're specifically used for ceremonial washing. And so in the servant's mind, understand, they're not dealing with the wine. They're thinking, well, I guess we're going to get to the uh, wine later. We've got to fill up these ceremonial washing jars. So they probably drop their, uh, their wine containers, their wine skins, and they run over to fill these things up. Now, you understand that they don't have a spigot. Uh, they don't have, obviously, any a hose, nothing like that. This is the old school way of doing it. They've got this uh, well with some type of a wooden contraption that lowers down a rope with a bucket tied on it. And then, of course, there's down at the bottom water. So they have to grab a bucket, tie the rope to it, toss it over the edge. It falls all the way down. They hope it lands sideways so that it begins to fill up, but it never does. It always lands flat on its bottom. They have to jiggle the rope back and forth. And it finally tips over sideways. They hope it fills all the way up, but it never fills all the way up. It only fills half the way up. Nonetheless, they pull it all the way up. They untie the bucket. They hand it to someone. They get a new bucket. They throw it over, hoping that it lands on its bottom, but it never does. And it, it, or on its side, but it never does. It lands on its bottom. So they have to jiggle the rope back and forth. It turns sideways. They hope it fills all the way up, but it never does and it only fills half the way up so they pull the rope all the way back up they untie the bucket hand it to their buddy grab another bucket tie the rope on the bucket they throw it over the edge hoping that it lands sideways but it never does it lands flat on its bottom so they jiggle the rope so it turns sideways hoping it'll fill all the way up but it never does but it only fills half the way up they pull it all the way up they untie the bucket they hand it to their friend they tie another bucket on they throw it over the edge and they do this to fill up six stone water jars each holding from 25 to 30 gallons That is a lot of water, isn't it? And you understand, you don't drag a stone jar for 30 gallons of water in it. That's heavy. So they've got a chain going on to work this in the hot sun, probably in the middle of the day. So they finally get these things filled with water. They finally get these things. They come back to Jesus and they say, they're sweating. They probably wipe their brow and they say, hey, mission accomplished. We've got those things filled with water. And of course, Jesus says, are you sure? And they say, I'm telling you, look at the blisters on my hands. We have that rope. I know it intimately. Those things are filled with water. Guarantee it. Now, Jesus looks at them, looks at one of the servants and says, draw some of it out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now, let me ask you something. Did they fill him up with wine? They filled it up with water. They've got, the, they've got the blisters to prove it. So would they use a ladle? Oh, no. First of all, it's not water. It's not wine. It's not even water for drinking. It's water used for ceremonial washing. And so Jesus tells them to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So obviously the master of the banquet is not going to drink it. The servants are thinking that he is ceremonially unclean. And he's the one in charge of the wedding, so they're beginning to put two and two together, going, oh, that's why he's not dealing with the wine. He's ceremonially unclean. And you know how Jesus is always putting God first. So he wants his master of the banquet to be ceremonially clean. So one of the servants goes over, gets this washing basin. He dips some of the water from the washing jar into the washing basin. He takes it to the master of the banquet, and he's standing beside him. Now, this is how the story unfolds. Listen Listen to the text. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he turns and he calls the bridegroom and begins to chew him out. So what happens is, is kind of looking at maybe what might have went on, you have this servant who goes to the master of the banquet. 
uh, probably takes a towel. He's got the washing basin, puts the towel over his shoulder. He goes up, uh, servant's little guy, master of the banquet's a big guy. So he's probably standing real submissively with his head bowed, looking, uh, standing at the back of the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet's probably talking with someone. You know how leaders are. And um, the master of the banquet turns and sees the servant standing there. And, of course, he looks in the washing banquet, uh, in the washing uh, basin, thank you, the washing basin, but he doesn't see water, he sees wine. Which you know he probably asked, why in the world do you have wine in that thing? You must be a new servant. That's for washing those pots over there for drinking. Don't get it mixed up again. And he grabs his cup, he tastes it, and of course the, uh, the story goes on and he, he's made, done this phenomenal miracle about changing the water into wine. Now, what is not mentioned in the text is how upset the senior adults became. Because you know what happens, don't you? Later on that afternoon, <laughs> I could see it happening. Later on that afternoon, some senior adult, probably male, is going to go and he's become ceremonially unclean. Or he needs to go and wash, become ceremonially clean for eating or something. So he goes up to what? The ceremonial washing jars. He probably takes off his outer jacket. He lays it across a chair. He stands and says some long, lengthy prayer. You know how it is, ladies. And he says some long, lengthy prayer. And he bends over to, to wash his hands. And what does he find? Wine. And who does he blame it on? The teens. That's right. He says, all right. Well, funny, funny. Where's the teen group? The old wine in the washing jar uh, prank again. And what, what Jesus has done. That was, it was funnier than that. It really was. What Jesus has done, you understand, that this whole deal in here, the whole focus of this whole miracle had nothing to do with wine. You understand that, don't you? The issue wasn't about the wine. So there, you can't really argue about whether it was, you know, what type of wine it was. Because he's not talking about that. The issue that was going on here was that Jesus comes into this wedding. He meets the needs of the people. But the need was not that they needed more wine. They'd already drank it all. They probably had enough wine, if you know what I'm talking about. The real need at the wedding was that they needed to know that the old covenant, the old way that God was relating to his people was passing and the new covenant had come and the old way that the people were ceremonially clean was through ceremonial washing and the new way that they would be clean would be through Jesus. And so what Jesus did in coming to the wedding is he literally shut down, stopped, prohibited that old covenant way of worshiping God. Stopped that thing. Which you understand that he didn't necessarily break the law. Uh, the law was that they were to be ceremonially clean. But you see, the Jews had come up with extravagant and elaborate uh, rituals for doing this. I don't necessarily call them rituals. I call them traditions. We have traditions, you understand that? And Jesus came against their traditions because their traditions became bigger in their eyes than the reason why they were doing them. Let me give an example of this. Back in the wilderness, the people, God commanded the people that on the seventh day, they were to rest. Well, how do you define rest? Well, the elders got together and said, well, what's resting? Well, it's no work. Here, here, I agree that. Well, what's working? Well, uh, we shouldn't, uh, you know, and they came up with all these types of things. One of the, one of the, one of the debates were, uh, how far can you walk on the Sabbath without working? So in the wilderness, they had this center, this, they had the tabernacle in the center, and the people of Israel camped around it. So what they decided was, was the outskirts of the camp where the people, where the people would actually stay, the very last house on the outskirts of the camp, to walk from there 
to the tabernacle on Sunday to go to church and back was as far as you could walk on the Sabbath. And any further than that was work. Now, so they came up with the tradition of what was working. And interesting, it got elaborate and they got, they got, I mean, they got minute on this type of thing to the point where you couldn't carry small things in your pocket. You couldn't do these types of things. You had to worship a certain way. See, the, the command folks was to worship. And, we came, and they came up with all these elaborate ways. And their traditions became more important than the whole idea of worshiping. You understand? You don't think we have stuff like that today, do you? No, surely not. Not us. And so what Jesus had done, what Jesus had done in the wedding, stick with me, you're going to like this. What Jesus had done in the wedding is he had come against their traditions and saying, hey, the big deal with ceremonial washing is not necessarily the thing of doing it just like this and you hold the towel like this and it has to be in this kind of basin. The whole deal was being ceremonially unclean and God in doing a brand new thing was changing the way they had always done it. Still wanted to be ceremonially clean, but he was changing the way they'd done it and in issuing a whole new way of doing it. Now, what's the consequence of that change? Oh, Church people love change. Did you know that? One of the, I'm kind of a new Nazarene on the last six years, seven years. And the first thing I learned in the Church of the Nazarene, that when change comes, people just, whoo, they jump for joy and go, wow! <laughs> and, I, and I heard this kind of stuff. I heard this kind of stuff. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. <laughs> so we're always going to do it this way right here. And we're never going to change because God doesn't change. Well, you understand that it's not God who changes. It's us who changes. It's us who changes. We, we are the ones who change is how I should say it. We are the ones who change. If you look in the Old Testament, you will notice, folks, that God never, ever revealed himself in the same way twice. The burning bush thing, that was, that was great, in my opinion. I mean, younger guy, uh, the words of my generation, that was cool. Hey, I mean, I'd, evangelists preach their best sermons two or three times. He could at least pull that one twice, but he never did. Never did. One time, the burning bush scene. Wasn't it? I mean, hey, I've done that two or three times, but he does it once. He does it one time. He reveals himself, the whole, uh, the whole donkey that spoke, that was, that was great. I, I'd do that one more than once, but he only does it one time. The dream and the visions, the visions that, that Joseph had. And he saw the, the stairway. I mean, hey, would you use that one again? Well, sure you would, man. But he only reveals, he only reveals himself in, in a certain way, one time, and he reveals himself afresh and anew every single time. Now, I, would, I don't call that change. That's not changing. And in terms of worship, you see, worship stayed the same, the same but the problem was he even told his people, hey... We're going to have to move this tomorrow. <laughs> Jesus told, or God told his people, hey, sing to me a new song. That one's old as can be. Come on, get with the times. Sing me a new song. And so David set out writing these psalms, which is we have several of them. And the problem is, is we get comfortable, folks. And I, hey, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not old. I'm young. But I get set in my ways so easily. And I get stuck in what's comfortable for Jeremiah. The same way the routines that I get, it's stuck in. And what I have found is that when my routine gets changed a little bit, oh boy, I'm telling you what, it does not fly well with me. And folks, you do as well. 
I can prove it to you. And we don't even get upset about things that should matter. Uh, this. Something's going to change this week. <laughs> now, if this thing is just made of wood, am I correct? Just wood. But if I were to take this and your communion table and put it outside and say, we'll, we'll mess with it next week, some of you probably wouldn't like that too much. And not because there would be spiritual value to it, but that it's just, hey, that's the way that we've always done it. Do you notice, and you prob- probably not here, but there seems to be tension developing about the hymns. The hymns. Not that they're bad. They're not bad at all. They were just written in the 1800s. Not that they're bad. Not that they're bad. But you understand, you understand that there's, we get, we get stuck in, hey, the way that, and teens, and you understand this is not just a senior adult thing, teenagers are just as bad, if not worse, because they say, we want to sing, we want to sing new stuff. We want to sing the, the upbeat music. But if they don't get the upbeat music, guess what? What kind of attitude is that? Do you see the focus? It's no longer based on, hey, what's best for you? It's what I like. The way I like to worship. The way I like to dress in the service. The way that I like the pastor to minister to me. The length of the sermon that I like the evangelist to have, which will never happen this week. And, of course, the way that, the way that I like this certain... Folks, do you see that? That's the same attitude of the world. In the name of Jesus, that is the same attitude of the world. And the illustration that John gives after John chapter 3, which is always about, always about being born brand new, of a whole new way of life, of not living for yourself, but living for others, not facing yourself with, this is what I need, but facing your world with one need, and that is, how can I meet the needs of those around me? After giving that awesome, awesome talk with Nicodemus, the illustration that is given is not one for the world, it's one for the church. Because what is the church of Jesus' day stuck on? Themselves. And God comes and wants to do a brand new thing. And the people are so glued on the way they've always done it that they don't even notice that God is doing a new thing. Let me ask you something. Would it be frightening if God wanted to come and do a brand new thing in our generation and we were so stuck on the way we've always done things that we miss it? That's right. Amen. In the name of Jesus, that's frightening. And hey, I know change. Uh, I, I know what change is like. But God never changes. He has one attitude of reaching His people. He has one attitude of relating to the lost. He has one attitude of reaching outside of Himself to grab others to bring to Himself. That's the number one deal. But see, we never... We, we, get, we get sidetracked from that. Church no longer is, how can we be attractive to our community? Hey, what kind of music do they, do they listen to? How can we be attracted to them, keeping the fundamental core values of what we believe? How can we stay relating to them? And church turns into, what do I like to sing best? What's best for me? Church is no longer, what time is going to be best? Well, what time should we have church on Sunday? What's the best possible hour to reach the lost? And it comes for what's best for me. Do, do we see that? What if, what if it's not about us? What if it's not, maybe what, what God is not concerned with is what's best for you? He's concerned with what's best for them outside. And churches aren't supposed to be clubs. Now you can apply this, of course, to the person who's living to themselves. 
But is that taking place inside the church or outside of the church? You look at our passage and look what happens is the church, the ones that you think would be in on this are not. For instance, what happens is, is in verse 25, this argument develops. You have some of the people, of course, you understand by this time, Jesus is becoming extremely popular. Everyone is following him. They, they've, they, they've heard what he did in, in, in Cana of Galilee. And like the church of yesterday, the church of the day, if anything happens, everyone knows about it in 24 hours. And so what happens was at the wedding, you have this awesome miracle that take, takes place. I mean, it's like wildfire. Everyone hears about it. He shows up in the temple. Everyone's been talking about him. He runs through the temple. He grabs these cords. He cracks a sheep over there, flips a table over here. Uh, he yells at a guy over here. And he, he he does all of these things and of course everyone is beginning to see what he's doing it says in verse 25 or in verses 23 and 25 24 and 25 of John chapter 2 that many people saw verse 23 of chapter 2 now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and put their faith in him many people many people saw what he was doing and of course began to follow after him so his his name you understand and his reputation he was becoming more popular among the people thousands of people are beginning to follow him so he comes out with his disciples and everyone seems to be going over to Jesus now what happens is, is some of John's disciples with John are out there baptizing and of course they're probably saying well where's everyone going and some certain Jew or a group of Jews says, hey, we're going over to Jesus. We're going to go over to be baptized by him. Hey, we're going to go over and be a part of it. Hey, we're going to go over and everyone's being attracted to Jesus. And of course, they probably said something like, what? Did you hear what Jesus did at the wedding back in Cana? Yeah, he showed at this wedding. And the whole conversation spills over about how Jesus filled the ceremonial washing jars with wine. And he stopped that. And so he stopped that tradition. And of course, John the Baptist disciples who were probably, obviously under the Old Covenant, who were zealous for the law, who were zealous for the Old Covenant, who were right in their heart. Of course, they probably looked at Jesus as a liberal. Not liberal. And of course, they're all upset. They're all angry. And listen to what happens. They come up to John the Baptist. Now listen, you understand back in John chapter 1, John the Baptist has been witnessing of Jesus. He said twice, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He goes on and says, who takes away the sin of the world? And he says, this is the one that I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And he begins to talk awesomely about Jesus. In fact, even two of John's own disciples leave to follow Jesus. John, the writer of this gospel, and Andrew. Two of his own disciples leave to follow Jesus. And so John the Baptist, hear this, John the Baptist's disciples are familiar with him. Listen to what they say. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, yeah, yeah, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. They know that, G that John has testified about him as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God, but how do, they, how do they refer to Jesus when he comes against their traditions? That man over there. They come up to John the Baptist and say, yeah, that man on the other side of the Jordan, yeah, yeah, Messiah, whatever he is, that one you testified about. Well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. And they're so angry. They're so upset. Why? Because in the midst of God doing a new thing, he has come, God has come against the way. Stick with me. He has come against the way that they had always done. And it's so abrasive. He comes against the way that they had always done the certain things and they come against their traditions. And what happens when God comes against our traditions? You've probably never seen that before, but people get angry about that. 
And so they come to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist wants to settle this. And listen to what John the Baptist says. Listen to what John the Baptist says. John says, listen, guys, a man can only receive what is given him from heaven. That is the focus statement. John looks at them and says, listen, guys, I am following him. And whatever comes from his hand, I accept. Whatever he's into, I'm into. Hey, whatever he's about, I'm about. And then he goes on and talks about Jesus. He says, you yourselves, that's emphatic. Hey, I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you, you guys. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ. But him sent ahead of him. Then he gives this illustration about the bride belonging to the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. In other words, the friend of the bridegroom waits with the bridegroom and when the bride comes, he hands the bride over to the bridegroom and they run off. The friend of the bridegroom doesn't see the bride and run off with the bride. Doesn't do that. That's bad. It's not good. But that's not his position. His position is to know that the bride belongs to the bridegroom and he is the one that waits and listens and prepares the way for the bridegroom. And John says, that's my role. That's my role. That joy is mine and is now complete. And then he comes to the focus of John's ministry, which is the focus of Jesus' ministry. He must become greater. I must become less. And the focus of God's plan is what you are seeing in the midst. You see, my ministry doesn't matter. My ministry is all wrapped up in what he wants it to be. And if he wants my ministry to become less so that this ministry over here, the ministry of Jesus, can become greater, hey, man, I'm all into that because he's into what God is into. Does it make sense? He must become greater and I must become less. And you understand that the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus, yeah, they were linked together, but they were different. But there was a, there was a consistency in this, in this ministry. The consistency was, he must become greater, I must become less. Hey, God, whatever God is into, I'm into. Whatever God's plan is for my life, I'm into that. Whatever God wants to do is what I want to do. Wherever God is going, I want to go. And you're going to find that attitude in every follower of Jesus in this disciple, or in this gospel. Everyone who wants to be a follower of Jesus has to come to that same conclusion in their life that whatever God wants is what God wants. Jesus sets in the garden and says, hey, not my will, but thine be done. I know, I know that change is difficult. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And the way that I always thought was the way men were to treat their wives was not the way that Jesus wanted me to treat my wife. And it's, it's more than just stop doing certain things and doing other things. It's a whole different thought pattern. You understand what I'm saying? It's a whole, whole different deal. But I know that my marriage... That God has called me to be in my marriage. The man who stands in the midst of his family. And says, hey, how can I meet your needs? Corinne, how can I not use you for myself? How can I not take you and bend you and manipulate you to best suit me? Folks, that's not Jesus. And you know that it's not Jesus. And we would, we would amen and say, hey, yeah, that's right. Hey, I agree with that. That you're not supposed to live to yourself. But how does that fit in the church? How does that fit in the church? Do we, do we come to church on Sunday saying, Oh, I long to be a part. I long to worship you. I long to set myself aside to be used in the midst of your, in the midst of your church the way you want it to be. Hey, church is not about me, God. 
it's about you. 